Good morning, church. How's everybody? It's good to see you. We, uh, we had a long commute this morning. Uh, we live right here in your backyard in O'Neill Village, so long way away. Um, so we got to sleep a little bit later than we normally do, uh, and it's good to be here. I love your pastor, Chad, after having gotten to know him over the last few months uh, and a year and a half or so. It's been good to get to know him and good to know that you guys are here. Uh, if you've got a copy of God's Word this morning, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We'll look at the whole chapter this morning, Isaiah chapter 6. While you're turning there, uh, let me give you just a little bit of introduction about me, um, because I've not been with you before. My name's Travis Kearns, as you see, well, as you saw up there, uh, <laughs> as you see on the uh, handout you were given when you came in, and I serve as the Associational Mission Strategist for the Three Rivers Baptist Association. Now, what in the world does that mean? There was a title before that that was Director of Missions, and then before that was Associational Missionary, so people know it by different titles. Basically what it means is, is I get to work with pastors, just like Chad, every single day, and encourage them, and help equip them uh, to fulfill their part, and then encourage and equip you as a church to fulfill your part of the Great Commission. That's what we do. We have 93 churches in this area that partner together for the sole purpose of encouraging each other and equipping each other to fulfill the Great Commission in our area. In fact, this area right here where you're sitting is the most concentrated part of Baptist life in all of the upstate of South Carolina. Now, why would I say that? In fact, probably all of Christian life in the upstate. Because just right here within a stone's throw of where we're sitting, there are three churches that are partnered together. You probably realize it, maybe you don't. Living Way is one of those. O'Neill Baptist right up here on the other side of 101 is one. And then Haven Ridge right here inside O'Neill Village is one. So you three churches are three churches partnered together for the sake of reaching people in our area for Christ. Every time you put a dollar in the offering plate, every time they do it at O'Neill, every time they do it at Haven Ridge, part of that comes to us at the associational office to be able to encourage and equip pastors and churches to fulfill their part of the Great Commission. That's what we do. We just, I mean, just this week, we've had probably 30 or 40 phone calls and or face-to-face -face meetings with pastors, church staff members from across the northern half of Greenville County and the western side of Spartanburg County. So I work full-time. I've got a counterpart that works, works full-time with me named Stephen. And we are constantly trying to help pastors and churches be encouraged to reach people for Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we do what we do. That's why you're here as a church, to encourage unbelievers to come to Christ by sharing the gospel with them and to disciple believers, right? That's why you're here. That's your sole purpose. That's what Jesus tells us in Matthew 28. Now you might think, well, there's a lot of churches in this area. Surely we don't need to be continually sharing the gospel because there's so many Christians here. In fact, we lived in Texas for two and a half years. Uh, we were international missionaries there because it's its own different country. That's a joke. Y'all kind of <laughs> calm down a little bit. And uh, we would often say, in Texas, there are more Christians than people. In South Carolina, it seems like there are more Baptists than people. <laughs> like, in Greenville County, there are more Baptist churches than there are gas stations. It's unbelievable. In this county alone, there are 200 Baptist churches, just in Greenville County alone. If you add up Anderson, Greenville, and Spartanburg counties, you get 700, just in three counties. It's unbelievable how Christianized this area is, but get this. So as we go back to thinking about the question, why should we or should we continue to share the gospel? If there's that many churches, surely we don't need to do so. Our area, though, as the buckle of the Bible belt, self-professing Christians in this area of the state, it's 23%. 23% self-professing Christians. That means 77% of the people that drive by on 101, that drive by this building every single day, 77% of those people will die and hear, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Now, look, I grew up in Taylor's, so that way a little bit, not too far from here, and I know that when I was growing up, this side of 101, there was nothing. Like, there was the hot dog stand, and then Tigerville. And that's about it. And we left in 2001, we've been gone 20 years, just came back January of last year, and I was shocked 
when we start driving up 101 and had to stop at the end of North Rutherford before we got to the Flying Pig, which if you've been around here long enough, you know what I'm talking about when I say the Flying Pig. We couldn't even get to the fire department because traffic was so backed up. And I thought, what is going on? Who are all these people? Where are they going? And then you start seeing all the developments hitting up here. And I was just blown away. 77% of the people who live in this subdivision right here, 77% of the people who live in our neighborhood in O'Neill Village are all lost. We can't help but share the gospel, church. That's why you exist. That's why our association of churches exists, to help share the gospel. That's why we do what we do. So all that to say, I want to, I want to encourage you to continue sharing the gospel in this neighborhood. Even though there are three churches that are right here that are partnered together, we still need to all work together to share the gospel. We're going to be in heaven together. We might as well get along now. <laughs> because a few decades on the earth is nothing compared to eternity, right? So we gather together, just like other Christians around the world, on Sunday morning to do one thing. We gather together to worship Christ. That's why we're here. Some churches have more people. Some churches have less. And guess what? That's okay. God builds the church the way He wants it. It's not our church, it's His. He builds it how He wants it. That's not to say we shouldn't continue to share the gospel. We should indeed do so, but God builds the church the way He wants it. So we come together for one purpose, and that's to worship Christ. We worship Him based on His character, based on His word, and based on His actions. And when we gather together, we do so from different backgrounds from different family backgrounds, different social backgrounds, all sorts of different backgrounds. Now, around here, differentiation in culture really depends on if you wear orange or garnet. For those of you who wear garnet, you too may be saved. And yes, I am a Clemson fan. If you prick me, I bleed orange on one side and purple on the other. There is a reason that poets of old talked about heaven and orange and purple and white and hell and garnet and black. That's, that's all I'm saying. We have different backgrounds though, right? We have different family circumstances, different job circumstances. All these sorts of things are different about us. But we still gather together for one purpose, and that's to learn from God's word and worship him based on what he has said to us and based on who he is. And our text today in Isaiah 6 teaches us this exact thing, that we worship regardless of circumstance. We learn from his word and we put that into practice. So if we sit here this morning or you sit here any Sunday or any time you're in a small group setting and you're learning from God's word and you don't put it into practice, what does James tell us? It's like somebody looking in a mirror and walking away having not learned anything from looking in the mirror. So hopefully this morning, as we look at God's Word, we will learn from it and be able to put it into practice. So, as I said, we'll look at Isaiah 6, 1 to 13, to worship the Lord through His Word and discover what He would teach us and how we can put it into practice. Now, one of the things I love, I grew up Baptist. I grew up about as Baptist as you can get at First Baptist Taylor's. We had Latin and German from the choir loft on Sundays when I was growing up. Minister of Music, when I was growing up, would often tell us, you'll know the gates of hell have prevailed. He would do it that way. Prevailed, and kind of, you know, move his voice around a little bit. Prevailed against the church when a drum set is found in the sanctuary. And I thought, uh-oh. Now, I am not that way. I asked him one Sunday, and by the way, I, I loved him to death. He actually did uh, our wedding. Loved him to death. He's still alive, still at Taylor's, and... Uh, I asked him one Sunday, I said, Brother Lindsay, uh, if, if drum sets are the gates of hell prevailing against the sanctuary, then David obviously was not a Christian or a Baptist because he played percussion and he danced. So we know that the, those two things obviously count him out, and he didn't like that very much, and on I went. But one of the things I love because I'm a Baptist is I love tradition. Now, not stupid traditions because some of them are just dumb. My grandmother called me one Sunday from North Georgia when she was still living, and she said, honey, you won't believe what happened at church today. And I said, Granny, what in the world is wrong? I mean, she was beside herself. I said, is the, did they replace the Bibles with the Book of Mormon? I mean, what's going on? <laughs> no, honey, they cleaned the carpet in the sanctuary. 
I said, okay, well, good. And she said, yeah, but when they put the pulpit furniture back, they didn't put the chairs in the same spot. I can see the indentions in the carpet where the chairs had been sitting for decades and they moved them just a little bit. I can't believe that. And I said, Granny, it's really going to be okay. That's a tradition that's dumb. Some traditions I love, and one of those is talked about in the book of Nehemiah. It says, when Ezra the priest stood to read God's word, the people stood in its honor. So if you're able to stand with me as we read from the word of God, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. God's spirit speaking through Isaiah, says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long? O Lord. And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Lord, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. God, we ask that You let us not run in front of the cross or lag behind, but keep us this morning at the feet of Jesus. And we do ask these things in His name. Amen. Be seated. So the first thing I want us to see today from Isaiah 6, 1 to 13, is this, is that God's holiness demands our praise. God's holiness demands our praise. Look with me me again at chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah begins this passage by noting it's the year of King Uzziah's death. Why in the world would you start this aspect of your prophetic letter talking about a guy that died? That's not very uplifting, is it? In fact, it's kind of depressing. Well, Isaiah is from a very, very wealthy family. In fact, he's probably from the wealthiest family alive at the time. And Isaiah is very likely the wealthiest prophet in all of Scripture. Incredibly, incredibly blessed financially. So because of that, Isaiah's family and Isaiah himself would have known the king, would have had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be in the presence of the king. So Uzziah, the king at that time, is a personal friend to Isaiah the prophet. So when Uzziah dies, Isaiah has lost a close personal friend counted him as a friend. In fact, Uzziah reigned for 52 years. It's likely at this point that Isaiah's family not only knew Uzziah the entire time, but it's entirely likely that Uzziah may have even seen Isaiah born and known him as a child. So basically, Uzziah is almost like a godfather-type figure to Isaiah, very, very close for most of Isaiah or Uzziah's 52 years on the throne, everything went really, really well. But at the end, other nations had risen to prominence. God's people were under threat. Also at this same time, God's people were turning away from His Word, from all of the earlier writings that they had read, from all the prophets that were around. Isaiah is not the only prophet around at this time. Some of the what we would call the minor prophets, the shorter writings at the end of the Old Testament. Some of those guys are around at the same time. 
And God had sent them because people had started turning away from His Word. So, Isaiah's friend dies, and God's people are turning away from His Word, and Isaiah, when the friend dies, when this king dies, is just stricken with grief. So where else would he go? What else would he do other than go to the temple to pray? Now, he also says in verse number 1, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Now, how is it, and by the way, y'all will figure out very quickly about me, we will just walk through this text, word by word, phrase by phrase. I have what I like to call a type AAA personality. If you have one, you know what that means. When I eat french fries, I line them up longest to shortest before I eat them. I have a spot for everything. It might look messy, but I know what is in every pile. Anybody like that? Okay, some of you are nodding, which means you understand. Wives, don't elbow your husbands. Husbands, don't do that to your wives. We're not looking for bruises in the ribs this morning. But what that means for me is when I read a biblical text, I tend to just camp out in places until we figure out what's going on. So we see that Isaiah sees the Lord. Well, we know from a number of biblical texts that you can't see God because He's spirit. So how is it that Isaiah sees God seated on the throne? Get this, the overwhelming majority of biblical scholars tell us that Isaiah is not seeing a vision of God the Father sitting on the throne, but he's seeing a vision of the pre-incarnate Jesus sitting on the throne. Isaiah gets a foretaste hundreds of years before Jesus comes to the earth in physical form. He gets a foretaste of what Jesus will look like and who He is. He sees a pre-incarnate Christ seated right there in front of Him. And it's interesting, Isaiah later in the book has four what we call servant songs, writings about the suffering servant, the longest being 52.13 to 53.12 in the book of Isaiah. And that's where you get things like he was crushed for our iniquities. He was bruised for our transgressions. Things that are even quoted in the New Testament. So Isaiah is having this vision of the pre-incarnate Christ reigning on the throne. Notice also in verse 1, how is this Lord pictured? Is He standing or is He sitting? What does the text say? Y'all can talk back, it's okay. Don't talk back to Chad, he's bigger than you are. You can talk back to me, it's okay. He's sitting. Why is that important? It's important that he's sitting because that means he is presently, currently in charge of all of his creation. He is in control of the universe. Now that should make you sit there right now and go, why? Because what that means is somebody else is not in in charge. Somebody else is not in control. God is in control. Period. There's nothing that can happen in your life that makes God go, wow, I didn't see that coming. We should go to plan B. That really threw me off. There is no plan B. There's just the plan. God is in charge. He is in control. He is sitting on the throne, as we see right here in verse 1, reigning and ruling. Notice also Isaiah says in this verse that he is high and lifted up. Now, if you were to later... Flip over to Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. You would read this. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. So even in Isaiah 6, 1, if you were to look later again at 52, 13 to 53, 12 in the book of Isaiah, you would see that not only is God seated on the throne high and lifted up, but that Christ will be high and lifted up. This is a picture of the pre-incarnate Christ. Also notice in verse 1 that the train of the robe fills the temple. This is an absolutely awful translation. There's not a single translation of Scripture that gets this right. The actual translation from Hebrew would read the hem of the train of the robe fills the temple. But that's too many words to put into English. But now think about for a second, everybody knows what the hem of a garment is, right? So... I wear in pants, I wear 32, 38, right, which are impossible to find. So when I find pants to fit, I buy like 40 pairs of them. So 38 inches long, and the hem at the bottom is maybe a half inch to an inch, something like that. So it's a very, very small part of the entire garment, right? That's the way hems work. So now go back to verse 1. 
And instead of the train of the robe filling the temple, think about the hem of the train of the robe filling the temple. Think about how big this vision is, how big the garment on God must be while he's sitting on the throne. Let's just say that this room right here is the temple. How big would a garment need to be if just the hem of the garment filled this entire room? Now, how big is this vision? Big. Massive. Gigantic. Huge. We might even say Titanic, right? It's absolutely enormous. So Isaiah walks into the temple. He's broken. He's grieving. He sees the Lord reigning and ruling over creation, high and lifted up, greatly exalted, and the sheer size of the hem of the train of this royal robe of Christ fills the whole temple. He has got to be completely overwhelmed. His senses are just overrun. Now look at verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. Let's talk about these seraphim for a second. Who or what are these? These are angels. The word seraph in Hebrew literally means to burn. When you add the little I-M onto the end of it, like you see in verse number 2 here, that means the burning ones. These are literally angels that are made of fire. Now, this is one of two ways that angels are described specifically in the Bible. You get the seraphim, angels made of fire, here in Isaiah 6. In Revelation 4, you get cherubim. These are beings covered with eyeballs. Now, when you think about an angel, though, what do you usually think about? You think about a little fat, chubby little baby with a harp and wings floating on a cloud selling us toilet paper. Angel soft toilet paper. You're welcome for the rest of the day for that picture in your head, right? Or you think about, anybody know what willow tree angels are? The little wooden figurines that folks, some folks buy and they don't have facial expressions. They're kind of weird and creepy like that. But we don't get those in Scripture. What we get in the Bible is we get flying flaming angels and flying angels covered with eyeballs. Now, why don't those sell us toilet paper? Is it because the flaming ones would set it on fire? No, it's because that's not a good marketing or advertising campaign. We've got to make things palatable to us. But Scripture says there are these seraphim, and they're above the throne. Now, look at what, how they're described. They have six wings. With two, they cover their face. What that means is they're not looking at God's presence. Because God is holy, the angels are not. Let's skip to the third description. With two, they flew. Why are they flying? So they're not walking in God's presence. Because God is holy, the angels are not. Look at the middle description. With two, he covered his feet. Why would the angel need to fly and cover his feet? He's already flying, so he's not walking in God's presence, but covering his feet wouldn't seem to make any sense. Well, again, in Hebrew, in the ancient world, feet meant chest to knees. So the angel is covering his face, he's flying, and he's covering himself to show humility before the throne. Okay? Now, look at verse 3. One called out to another. So what's happening is, is one line over here of angels is, is uh, singing out what we're about to read, and then the other side would echo it. So they would sing it back, and then the first side would sing it back, and the other side would sing it back, and they're just going back and forth and back and forth. What are they singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. This is the only attribute of God in Scripture that is repeated in triplicate form. Holy, holy, holy. Usually, though, when we ask about who God is, if you were to say, if I were to ask you, tell me what you think about, what's one word you would think about if I were to ask you to describe God? The vast majority of people on the earth would say love. Now, it's not wrong. First John tells us God is love, but nowhere in the biblical text, Old or New Testament, do we see God as love, love, love. What we do see, though, twice, Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, is that God is holy, holy, holy. A God that is predominantly holy is a very different God than one that is predominantly loving. A God that is predominantly holy the question is, God, why would you allow people into heaven because we're sinners? A God that's predominantly loving, the question is, God, why would you send people to hell? You see the difference in between those two? It's massive. It's a huge difference. 
and it's two completely different gods. Over here, it's not fair for us to get into heaven because He's holy and we're not. Over here, it's not fair for anybody to go to hell because He's all loving and that wouldn't be right. Guess which one culture, contemporary culture wants us to have? The loving, all-caring God that just hands out Werther's originals to children and pats them on the head and says, your sin's okay, don't worry about it. You're going to go to heaven anyway. Over here, though, when we proclaim biblical truth and say God is holy, you need to repent of your sins and come to Christ because He's the only thing that covers for it. Society says, no, slow down, wait a minute. I don't want that. That's mean and that's rude and that's crass. How in the world could you say something like that? I'm not. The Bible is. So see the difference in between these two? Now, look at how loudly they're singing. Look at verse 4. I love this. I especially love this when I use this text in very traditional Baptist churches. Now, you're not one of those, I know that, but look at verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Let's talk about the second part first, the house being filled with smoke. Why is that the case? This is not because the flying, flaming angels are burning the house down. This is because in the Old Testament, during the day when God appears, He appears in a cloud of smoke, and at night when He appears, He appears as fire. So this is simply a picture of God appearing in the temple in a cloud of smoke. Now the first part, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called out. The angels are singing and worshiping so loudly that the foundation that the temple is built on is shaking. Now, here's what happens. For those who've ever been up here looking out this way during a time of singing, please don't raise your hands or point to people or anything like that. I love sitting up on a platform watching churches sing. You can tell a lot about a church by the way they sing. Because if you were to just think about for a second the words to Amazing Grace... Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. How should we sing that? We should be grateful to God with smiles on our faces that we were lost, but now we're found. We're blind, but now we see because we're a wretch and God has saved us through His grace. But how do we sing it? We sing it as though we were the founding members of the convention of Eeyore lovers from Winnie the Pooh. Y'all remember Eeyore? Thanks for noticing me. How would he sing Amazing Grace? Like a lot of Christian people do. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. That's what he would do, right? And that's how a lot of Christians sing. The angels have not been atoned for. Christ did not die for the angels. Yet when they sing, the foundations shake. They're singing so loudly and with such force and... Importantly, verse 3 tells us with really deep, meaningful theology. They're not singing mindless choruses with just the same word repeated over and over and over and over. Christ died for us, church. If the angels that are unatoned for shake the foundations, how much more intense should we be when we sing? I think there's something to be said. Think about what's coming up in September. I just mentioned it earlier. You can drive over to Pickens County in September every Saturday and with 90,000 of your closest friends yell and scream like crazy people because there's 11 guys from one team on a 100-yard field and they're throwing around a piece of pigskin. And that's what we yell and scream for. Or you can go to Columbia and do whatever they do down there. I don't know what they do down there. They hear some rooster crow. I do know that. But in Pickens County, there's football. You know why the safest place during a tornado to be is Williams-Brice Stadium? Because there's never a touchdown. Y'all can use that. You're welcome. So we yell and we scream at sports, and we yell and we scream for grandkids, and we yell and we scream for kids and all this stuff. But then we come to church, and it's like we turn all that off. Because for some reason, you walk in here, and something just immediately changes, and you got to be more holy and more righteous than everybody else. And you can't, oh, we don't want to see Sister Janie over here see me raise my hand and worship. God forbid that happened. But again, even though David played percussion and danced, 
we can't follow that biblical example because somebody might think something poorly of us. But we sure will play percussion and dance for 11 guys throwing around a piece of pigskin. There's something wrong with this picture. It should be the other way around. So if these, again, if these created but unatoned for angels are shaking the foundations, how much more should we as created and atoned for sing with all of our hearts? Now, I'm not talking about becoming crazy charismatics and running through the streets. And there was a, the church that my wife grew up in, there was a guy there named Richard who everybody called Dickie. And when Dickie got excited during the songs... He'd run up, he'd grab the Christian flag, he'd stand in the middle of the front row, and he'd wave it around. Now, if he got really excited, he'd go outside of the building, into the two-lane, 55-mile-an-hour road outside, and stand in the yellow lines and wave the thing around. Right? Now, you think, well, that man's crazy. Maybe, but maybe he just loves Jesus. I'm not saying you come up here and grab the flag and start waving it around. What I'm saying is, is that the angels can sing and yell and scream for Christ, and they are not atoned for, we should be able to do even more so. Why are the seraphim singing so deeply? Because God is holy and the angels are not. Why should we do this? Because God is holy and we are not. As He changes our hearts, giving us the ability to turn to Him, we realize how holy He really is and we worship. So first, His holiness demands our praise. I promise you every point is not this long. Secondly, Verse number 5, we'll see that God's perfection requires our response. Look again at verse number 5, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah realizes his situation is bad, very bad. He's in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. And he knows the promise of Scripture. If any human sees God, he will die immediately. So notice Isaiah's first words in this situation, I am ruined, I am lost. He knows his sin, he knows the consequences for that sin. And then look specifically and tell me in verse number 5, the particular sin he is specifically worried about. What is it? His lips, his speech. And he's also worried about not just himself, but who else? Everybody. And what's he worried about? Speech, their lips specifically. Why is he worried about it? Because he's seen the king. So as he comes before the king of creation, his response is the realization of sin and shame and sorrow for that sin and the immediate concern about death. He responds to God's holiness by realizing he's a sinner and he cries out about it. Church, just like Isaiah did, we should cry out about our sin to God. Realizing he is holy and We are not, and beg for forgiveness. So secondly, God's perfection requires our response. Thirdly, God's grace brings our forgiveness. Look at verses 6 and 7. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. This is where Isaiah has his eyes opened. One of these flying, flaming angels leaves the company of his worshiping colleagues And he goes over to the altar. What does verse 6 say? Using a pair of tongs, the seraphim removes a flaming coal from the altar. Now, why would he use tongs? His hand is made of fire. If he reaches into the altar, it's not going to burn his hand. The angel reaches into the altar with tongs to remove a coal because the altar is holy and the angels are not. And he can't defile the altar. Now, consider again Isaiah's circumstance. He's broken. He enters the temple to seek God's wisdom. He enters for worship during a very low moment in his life. He sees the pre-incarnate Christ. He hears this roaring worship of the angels. He experiences the temple filling with smoke. He's overwhelmed with all these sensations. He realizes he's a sinner. He proclaims his imminent death. And then, one of the flying, flaming angels comes flying towards him with a burning coal from the altar. Isaiah has just said, I'm going to die. Here comes a flying, flaming angel with a red-hot coal. Y'all are starting to get the sense of what's going on here, because I can hear some of your reactions. If we're Isaiah, what's our first thought, for being honest? This is going to hurt. I'm going to die, God, because I'm a sinner. Uh Uh-oh. 
Here comes the angel. Now, look at the beginning of verse 7. He touched my mouth. Do you remember from verse 5? What was Isaiah worried about personally? His unclean lips. What's he worried about corporately? Unclean lips. What does the angel in verse 7 specifically touch? His lips. The very thing Isaiah is concerned about and asks for forgiveness over, the angel, through God's grace, takes care of. What does he say? Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Imagine all of these emotions that Isaiah has and imagine the emotional overrun that he has as the angel touches his lips and says, your sin is atoned for, your iniquity is taken away. Shock, tears of joy, no adequate words. It's the grace of Christ, the one Isaiah is staring right in the face, that has forgiven him. In the same way that Isaiah has nothing to do with this, all he does is say, I'm going to die, God forgive me. And the angel comes over. Isaiah has nothing to do with that angel coming to offer forgiveness through the grace of Christ. Church, in the same way, our salvation is not dependent on us. We cry out for forgiveness. We cry out for God's grace. And He is the one who brings about our forgiveness. Fourthly, finally, God's forgiveness leads us to share. Look at Isaiah 6, 8. It's my favorite verse in all Scripture. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. What just happened to Isaiah in verses 6 and 7? What did the angel touch? Isaiah's what? His lips. With what? A red-hot coal. What is the last thing you want to do if your lips have been touched with a burning coal? Talk. Why? Because you have no lips. One. Two. Every ounce of pain in your body is focused right here. If your lips have been burned off. But look at what happens in verse 8. God says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah, with the stench of burning flesh in his nose, with the pain, the searing pain of lips being burned off, running through his body. God says, who will go? And Isaiah says, I will. Now, what's interesting about this is a lot of commentators will kind of focus on this in verse 8, and some will call Isaiah the lipless prophet. Because probably the way this is going is, Isaiah has no lips left. And so God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, I'll go. No lips. Now, if we're just being honest here, the last guy you want going out to share a message is one that doesn't have any lips because people are going to look at him funny. And he's already got a hard message to share as it is. And he's well known because he's wealthy. So you've got the wealthy, lipless prophet who's having a hard time speaking because he's got blisters probably beginning to form. When God says, who will go, Isaiah says, I'll go. Now, I want you to notice what he doesn't say. He does not say in verse 8, well, hang on. Let me pray about this. He doesn't need to pray. He's been forgiven. He doesn't say, hang on, let me call the leadership of the church together and see if I should go and share the message that, you've, that you're going to give me. Does he do that? No. He doesn't say, let me call this group together, or this ministry team together, or this committee together, or anything like that. Isaiah's been forgiven by God, and God says, who's going to go? And what's Isaiah's immediate response? I'll go. Isaiah has no idea what God is calling him to. He has no idea where God is calling him. 
He has no idea what God is calling him to say. Isaiah knows nothing other than God saying, who will go? And what does he say? I will. No idea what circumstances are coming. Why does he do this? He does this because R.C. Sproul, commentating on this, says this, Isaiah may be the only person in the history of humanity to experience the true pain of repentance and the true joy of forgiveness. He gets it. And then God offers the details. And let's just say this is not exactly uplifting. Look at verses 9 and 10. God said, go and say to the people, keep on hearing but do not understand, keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of the people dull, their eyes or their ears heavy, they blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So, Isaiah is told to go and share a message of God's grace, repentance, and forgiveness. And he's told, oh, by the way, they're not going to listen, they're not going to understand, they're not going to repent. Well, that's terribly uplifting. Thanks, God. And then Isaiah responds in verse 11 exactly like we would. Look at the first phrase in verse 11. Then Isaiah, I said, how long, O Lord? I think that's how we would respond, isn't it? God, you've forgiven me. I'll go. Okay, you're going to go, God says, and nobody's going to listen. Nobody's going to see. Nobody's going to hear. Nobody's going to understand. They're not going to turn. Um, God, uh, question, how long? How long? Is this going to be like a five-minute thing? Am I in for an hour? Do I need to pack a lunch? Am I in this for a day? Like, give me some details here. How long? And then it just gets worse. Verse 11 continues, And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. Verse 12, And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. So, that's a long time. Isaiah is going to proclaim the message of God until cities are devastated and empty, until the land is barren, until the Lord has removed the inhabitants far away into exile, and the land is said to be forsaken. This will not be an easy ministry. It is a long road with nearly impassable navigation. Guess what God calls us to do as believers? Long road, nearly impassable navigation but we've been forgiven, so we do it. And then comes verse 13. This is a but God moment. I am firmly convinced that the best two words in Scripture are not Jesus saves, but the best two words found together in Scripture are but God. The entire Old Testament is the Israelites were dumb, but God sent prophets. The entire New Testament, the rest of the world was dumb, but God sent Christ. Without but God, you don't get to Jesus saves. Verse 13 is a but God moment. Look at what it says. And though a tenth remain in it, it'll be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. So what God is telling Isaiah in verse 13 is this. There will be some who will hear. There will be some who will see. There will be some who will understand. There will be some who will respond positively. God promises that there will be a portion who will hear, be changed, fall on their faces, and be forgiven. And, verse 13 says, they will be put through trials and tribulations. They will be tested, but they will remain steadfast. Brothers and sisters, as those forgiven by the grace of Christ, just like Isaiah, we are called to share about the grace and mercy of Christ with those around us. And like Isaiah, the majority of those will not understand, they will not see, they will not hear, they will not respond positively. But some will. It's not our role to pick and choose who will or won't respond. It's our role to share the message of Christ. Our role is to share the Holy Spirit's role is to convict and convert. We are to talk. The Spirit convicts and converts. We don't manipulate. We proclaim God's goodness, His holiness, His wrath on our sin, and His grace offered through Christ. We proclaim the gospel message because we have been forgiven. Because God commands us to. Because we have the pain of forgiveness running through our lips. We do so because we've been 
forgiven. So fourthly, God's forgiveness leads us to share. Isaiah 6 teaches us about knowing God. Tells us about who we are, about who He is, about what He's done for us, and about how we should respond. Living way, 77% of the people within a five-mile radius of this church are lost. You might think, oh, there's so many Christians around here. People have heard the gospel. Do not take anything for granted. There are people that you will have contact with that I never will, and that I will that you never will. It is our responsibility to be salt and light in every single person's life with whom we have contact. That doesn't mean you have to get on a plane and go across the pond. It doesn't mean you have to go to a different state. I'm thankful that you've got a mission team in Pennsylvania right now. But your mission field might not be across the pond. It might not be Pennsylvania. It might be the person in the bed next to you. It might be the person in the bedroom next to yours. It might be your neighbor. It might be a coworker. It might be a friend, a family member. It might be somebody at the grocery store you go to all the time. It might be somebody at the gas station. You might say, I'm never around unbelievers. Do you, do you get out of bed every morning? Yes, you do. Here you are. Good. We're all together on this. If you go to the gas station... You might be around an unbeliever and just not know it. Well, I'm not around people at the gas station. Yes, you are. When you pull up to the pump, the person across the pump with you is stuck with you until they're done. They can't go anywhere. When you go to the grocery store, the person that's checking you out behind the cash register is stuck with you until you're done. The one that's buying groceries in front of you is stuck with you until they're done. The one behind you is stuck with you until you're done. There's opportunities every single day. We just have to open our eyes and see them. You're not going to get the Goodyear blimp fly over, or maybe we call it the Godyear blimp fly over and say, witness now. It, God puts people in our paths to share. I share this final story. I had a professor in seminary named Tim Booker. Dr. Booker's wife, Sharon, was a piano teacher. Piano teachers... Have anybody here a piano teacher? Okay, got one. Piano, or one hand I saw anyway. Piano teachers have these things that they do called recitals. For piano students, recitals aren't always this way, but sometimes I've, I've been to some because our son took piano when he was growing up. Piano recitals can be like fingernails on a chalkboard because a lot of times students aren't perfect. In fact, they're never perfect, Right? So, Tim Booker and his wife Sharon, Sharon was the piano teacher, they had to go to a piano recital because Sharon was teaching. And Tim was upset. He was in seminary at the time doing a, working on a Ph.D. in evangelism. And as he tells the story, he said, I was already upset because we had no money because you're in seminary. I'm working four jobs just to pay the bills and all these things. And Sharon's teaching piano to help pay the bills. And he says, so... I find out that she's got this piano recital, so they've got little kids, and he said, I had to scrounge up, come up with the money to pay the babysitter, and I had to put extra gas in the car, and I knew it was going to be so far, we were going to have to buy food while we're out, and he's just already upset because you've got to go to hear this, in his words, stupid piano recital. So, it's supposed to be X number of miles away. It ends up being twice as far as it's supposed to be. It ends up lasting twice as long as it's supposed to last. So, they get in the car after the recital, and in his words, we created dual climate control because my side was hot and her side was ice cold. So they're driving back, and he said I had to stop and get gas because it was so far away. He wasn't planning on it. So he pulls into the gas station. He gets out of the car, and he slams the door. And you know how it is, guys, when you're mad and you have to get gas, and you're, everything becomes a door you can slam when you're mad. So you're ripping the nozzle out of the gas pump and you're slamming it in the nozzle in the car and you're, you know, cranking it down really hard. And this is before you had the little flip thing. So he's sitting there holding on, putting gas in the car and just watching the bill rack up, right, on the gas pump. He's just, this is before you could, you know, just put a credit card in the machine. You had to actually, I know, heaven forbid, go into the gas station and speak to somebody and pay for the fuel. So he gets done, he slams it back in the pump and he goes storming off towards the door of the store to pay. And before he walks in, he gets this sensing from the Spirit. Share Christ with the lady behind the counter. 
He says, God, I'm not doing it. I'm mad. I'm not in the mood. I'm not going to do it. Share Christ with the girl behind the counter. I'm not doing it. I'm upset. He walks in and he walks up to the counter and he slaps his money down the counter. That's for pump four. He turns around to walk out. And he says, he's walking out. This man comes walking in who's a truck driver. He's got the beard with the zip code. Big dude, tattoos everywhere, right? Big old boy. Walks in. As he walks in the door, Tim's about to walk out, and that truck driver looks at the girl behind the counter and says, Ma'am, do you know Jesus? And Tim said, Oh, I had to stop. I had to turn around and just wait. He said, Because I'm doing a PhD in evangelism, and I know you just can't walk in and, Ma'am, do you know Jesus? And think that everything's going to go okay, and she's just going to come back at him and level him, and this is going to be a great moment. I'm going to have stories to tell students later on. It's going to be amazing, and she's just going to let him have it. So he turns around expecting this woman's face to be turning fire engine red. And when he turns around, he sees her face turning red, but she's weeping. And she looks at that big burly truck driver and she says, I've been waiting for somebody to ask me that all day. And that truck driver stood there in that gas station and led that woman to Christ. Here's the guy doing a PhD in evangelism who says, nope, not doing it too angry. Yet here comes the normal Christian man looking at the woman saying, do you know Jesus? And she gets saved on the spot. Don't ever discount where you are. Don't ever discount who you're coming into contact with. Every person that you come into contact with is an opportunity for you to share the gospel message of Christ. Why? Because God forgave us. And we should say, here I am. Send me as we pray together. Lord, We are thankful for who you are, for what you've done for us in Christ. God, if there's one here today or listening via video who has not placed faith and trust in Christ, Lord, we know that we are sinners. We have done the very thing that you have told us not to do. God, we know that based on our sin, based on doing the thing you have told us not to do, that we are sentenced for eternity to hell to face your wrath. Lord, your word also tells us that though we are sentenced to face your wrath for eternity in hell, that if we would simply place our faith and our trust in Christ, that he did enough on the cross to cover for our sins, that we indeed will be saved from death and hell and be able to worship around these flying, flaming angels forever and ever. Lord, if there's one here today who has never done that, change that person's heart from stone to flesh so that he or she can see you for who you really are, the Lord who is gracious, who forgives, who is the Holy One of Israel. For those here who have been touched by the grace of Christ, Lord, convict us to share that message with all around us. Break our hearts over our area, over the lostness around us in the same way that Jesus was broken for Jerusalem and wept, and Paul was broken for Athens and wept. Lord, may we weep over the lostness around us. Move us to share, because you indeed are holy, holy, holy. Lord, here we are. Send us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.